So we are continuing our doctrinal study on Roman Catholicism. We started last week by talking about the issue of authority. We looked at the, uh, the bishops and their teaching authority, that they are the only ones who have the right to interpret divine revelation. We looked at the papacy and the pope and his ability to interpret divine revelation, that he can do so infallibly, that is, without error. Then we looked at the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church that defines doctrine and dogma, and they give new revelation that they call tradition. This week, you're going to see the results of that tradition. You're going to see what that tradition is. And you're going to see that as we talk about Mary, specifically six heretical doctrines regarding Mary. And I don't use the term heretical lightly. I'm not being hyperbolic here. I think you'll see that's what they really are. And there are six of them. They're not, most of them are not real hard to understand, but I'm going to be using another little book. It's not actually little. It's called The Glories of Mary. It was written by now St. Alphonsus de Liguori. I'm using saint in their term, not mine. He was a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, so he had the teaching authority. And what he did was he compiled a 900-plus page book of all the prayers to Mary throughout church history. And he titled the book, The Glories of Mary. And that book has the imprimatur or the seal of the Roman Catholic Church saying it is doctrinally accurate. So we're going to be relying heavily on that just to see how their theology plays out in their prayers. All right? Let's go with the first one. The Immaculate Conception. This doctrine teaches that God prevented Mary from ever inheriting the sin nature at conception. She remained sinless her entire life. They say that God prevented her from gaining original sin, that sin that was passed on from Adam. Mary did not receive that from Adam. Here's what they said. This was declared by Pope Pius IX in 1854. Remember we said there was two infallible statements by popes that are considered unofficially infallible? This is the first one. 1854, Pope Pius IX in his bull Ineffabilis Deus. Here's what he wrote. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary at the first instant of her conception was preserved immaculate from all stain of original sin, has been revealed by God, and on this account must be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. Notice this decree that the Pope issued on his own is revealed by God, and you are required, if you are a Catholic, to believe his decree. Not because he can prove it through church history, not because he can prove it in Scripture, but because he is the Pope and he said it. Also note, the Virgin Mary, at the first instant of her conception, was preserved immaculate from the stain of original sin. The sin nature that the rest of us inherited, they are claiming she did not receive. The Catholic Catechism interprets this this way. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The Catholic Catechism says this prevention of the sin nature from passing to Mary was a form of redemption, that she was in fact redeemed at the moment of conception. Vatican II 
Ecumenical Council from the 1960s, said this, adorned from the first instant of her conception with the radiance of an entirely unique holiness. This is a holiness that no other creature on the earth has because she is the only one that God did this for. No one else was prevented from receiving the sin nature but Mary. Vatican II continues, It is no wonder, therefore, that the usage prevailed among the fathers whereby they called her the mother of God, entirely holy and free from all stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. Because she did not receive the sin nature, because she did not receive original sin, they claim that Mary was without sin her entire life and that she never sinned throughout her life. Catholic Catechism again. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Now, you already know this, but who does Scripture say was free of sin their whole life? Jesus. They depict this in images. The image in the background is that one. This is the Immaculate Heart of Mary. If you're around Roman Catholics a lot, you'll see it. This describes her sinlessness. The sword in the heart is the description of Jesus dying and piercing her heart. But it's interesting that they have Mary with an immaculate heart because they also have Jesus with an immaculate heart. I find it interesting that they both have an immaculate heart, they're both dressed exactly the same way, and their hands are both doing exactly the same thing. Now, when Protestants say, look, this is completely unbiblical, the Catholic Church responds this way. Well, here's what they say. They say she was redeemed, right, from the moment of her conception. Catholic theology believes in what is known as creationism. That is to say that when a new baby is created in the womb, God actively creates that soul. At the moment of conception, he creates the soul the body is created through natural processes of procreation, and then God takes that soul and implants it into the body. So the body is created by the parents, the soul is directly created by God. What they're saying is she was redeemed in the sense that when that body was created by Mary's parents, God supernaturally intervened and stopped the sin nature from reaching Mary. That's what they mean by redemption, and they hide behind this idea that this was done because of the future work of Christ. Dr. Ludwig Ott, who is a systematic theologian, said this, It follows from this that even Mary was in need of redemption and was in fact redeemed. By reason of her natural origin, she, like all other children of Adam, was subject to the necessity of contracting original sin. But by a special intervention of God, she was preserved from the stain of original sin. Thus, Mary also was redeemed by the grace of Christ, but in a more perfect manner than other human beings. Notice his definition. She was preserved from sin, from the stain of original sin. Thus, Mary was also redeemed. He is defining redemption as liberation from the curse of sin liberation from the sin nature. And he's saying that she was redeemed at the moment of conception. There's a problem here. The Bible has a lot to say about redemption in the sense of being freed from your sin nature. 
And every time it's discussed, it's discussed in the future tense. It's never discussed as past tense. And everybody is lumped in. Luke 21, 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Romans 8, he said the whole creation groans, longing for the redemption to be set free from the sin natures, to be set free of the curse. Dr. Ottigan, thus the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary in no way contradicts the dogma that all children of Adam are subject to original sin and need of redemption. If you're talking to a Roman Catholic who knows their theology, and you say, well, Mary couldn't be sinless because of the sin nature must pass everybody, this is how they'll sidestep it. And they'll say, no, 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 no. She was redeemed like everybody else. But they've defined it completely differently, and they've taken it out of its context. Redemption is at the final end. Unless they're saying she was saved by Christ, but why would she need to be saved if she never had sin? There's no need for it. Mary, this idea that Mary remains sinless, scriptures are clear. There's nobody who remains sinless except Christ. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Mary's own words, Luke 1, 46-47, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Why do you need a Savior if you don't have any sin? The only people who need to be saved are those who have sin. And if Mary has no sin, this statement does not make sense. There's no reason for her to need a Savior. Scripture also affirms that Jesus, like you guys had said, Jesus is the only one without sin. He is the only one who lived a perfect, sinless life. I hope you guys see at this point what they've done is they've taken Mary and they've put her right alongside, and they've given her the attributes of Christ. Let's go to the second one. By the way, if you guys have questions, stop me, okay? Good point. Well, I think they would. Well, to the second one, we'll answer that here when we get to this next doctrine because they don't affirm that she has other children. Uh, to the first one, that's the inconsistency of Roman Catholic theology. They'll say one thing here and then they'll deny it over here. And what you'll see is you'll see that because they'll say she's sinless, but here when we get to this next doctrine, uh, they essentially say she sinned her entire life, and I'll, I'll show you where that is. Perpetual virginity. Uh, this one can get off into the weeds, and so we're going to try to keep this church appropriate, okay? Um, the doctrine teaches that Mary was a virgin before the conception of Jesus, during and after his birth, and she remained a virgin the rest of her life. The Catholic Catechism says this, The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. Now, Catholics affirm the virginal conception of Jesus Christ, which is an orthodox view. 
but they also say that Mary remained a virgin even after the birth. And they're not just talking about she didn't have relations with another, with a human or an, a, a man. The Catholic Catechism. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. That's a nice way of saying after the birth, she had absolutely no physical trauma to her body whatsoever. That is a description of her physical attributes after the birth. She gave birth and there was no physical side effect whatsoever to her body. Her body remained just as it was before the birth. The Catholic Catechism then says she remained a virgin in the sense that she never had relations with a man. And they say this by saying Jesus is Mary's only son. Pope Pius IX in his bull Ineffabilis Deus, the same one that gave us the Immaculate Conception, here's what he said of her. In her, who with her only begotten son. Is anyone bothered by that phrase? What bothers you about that phrase? Her, her only begotten. That is a title that is only ascribed to the Father. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. It is never applied to Mary. But here they have taken Mary and they have given her this title of being the mother of the only begotten. It's a title that only is ascribed to the Father. And the Catholic Catechism says, look, okay, you Protestants don't agree with us because you think the Bible teaches that Mary had other children. But they don't think that. Here's what the Catholic Catechism says. I know this is a long quote, but we'll get through it. Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood these passages are not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of Mary, a disciple of Christ whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations of Jesus according to the Old Testament expression. In fact, one Catholic translation of the Bible, when it says Jesus' brothers, it says they are his cousins. But they have to preserve the doctrine. So they can't have the text say what it actually says. So let's look at this and just consider this. First, let's go back to what Forrest had mentioned a minute ago. If Mary remained sinless her entire life, she was married. She was married to Joseph. If she remained a virgin her entire life, then she was, in fact, in sin. She withheld herself from her husband. 1 Corinthians 7 says, do not withhold yourselves from your spouse. So she can't be immaculate and sinless and be a perpetual virgin who's married. But let's deal with the Mary did not have other children. Go to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 46 and 47 real quick. Matthew 12:46 Here's what it says. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, "Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside speaking to speak." <laughs> wow, seeking to speak to you. If I could speak, that would be great. The term he uses here for mother, 
They want to say this is someone other than Mary. This is someone other than his human mother. This is the other Mary. There's a problem with that. You see, the Greek word that Matthew uses here is used 83 times in the New Testament, and it always means mother. It never means anything else. And in fact, the gold standard of the Greek lexicon's BDAG gives two possible meanings to this word. You know what are there? A female parent or mother. An entity that bears the relation of a mother. So is there any way that we're going to look at this and say this is someone other than his human mother? What about his brothers? Maybe those are cousins. Not really. Because the Greek word there is used in a couple ways. It could be referring to his biological brother. It could also be referring to a spiritual brother in the sense that force is my brother in Christ. But Rome denies both of these. And they say both of these are wrong. These are his cousins. But the word for cousin is not used here. It's very plain. This is a brother of Jesus. But also notice, who is it that points out to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are waiting for him? People outside, right? The crowds. The crowds knew Jesus. We know that if you flip over to Matthew 13, look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Let me get back where I am. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew who his mother was. They even knew who his father was. They said, is not this the carpenter's son? So why would they talk about his legal father, Joseph, and then switch to a different Mary? That's his family. They know who he is. Mary obviously had other children. And if she didn't, and she withheld herself from her husband, again, she's in sin. So the Immaculate Conception cannot be true. Any questions so far? Comments? Yes. Yes. We're going to hear a lot from Pius. And it's a lot from that one bull, ineffabilis deus. So, yeah. No movement on sisters. It's always in the Mexico, they refer to Mexico, 
Well, one of my confusions was is who this one and who's that one and all of a sudden well it turns out it's the same one. It's all this thing with the Virgin Mary. I even as a Catholic I couldn't even follow that. It was so mm-hmm. confusing. Like, are you gonna especially that oh well maybe there's no time for but see I don't even know yeah. if that's really from the Roman Yeah, there. What he's talking about is there's different names. One is the Lady of Guadalupe. One is I forgot the others, but there's a lot of different names that are used. My understanding, and I haven't studied that in depth, but my understanding is those are references to apparitions of the so-called Mary when she has appeared at Guadalupe, when she appeared to Juan Diego. Right. So those are names associated to apparitions, and that would be a whole class by itself because they actually develop theology from the apparition. And then they take whatever the, the spirit said to them, and then they go and run with it. But we're not going to actually get into that today. So, Yeah, Mormonism goes really stranger, and they say that Jesus is the, how do you say, he is the offspring of God the Father because the Father had a physical relationship with Mary, and it gets really weird and really, yeah, but that that's going to get us off. Um, okay, let's go to the next one, Mother of God. This is a major doctrine, and you hear people refer to her as the Mother of God constantly. And they say, well, Jesus was God and Mary birthed him. Therefore, she's the mother of God. But there is some deep theology attached to this that has some major implications that you need to know about. Let me just give you a summary of what the doctrine is. This doctrine teaches that Mary is the mother of God and that as his mother, she has special access and authority in heaven that others do not. And I'll, I'll show you that here in a minute. Again, Pius IX, same guy who gave us the Immaculate Conception. Here's what he said in the same bull. From the very beginning and before time began, the Eternal Father chose and prepared for his only begotten Son a mother in whom the Son of God would become incarnate and from whom in the blessed fullness of time he would be born into this world. Above all creatures did God so loved her that truly in her was the Father well pleased with a singular delight. That last phrase, does it strike you funny? Maybe like from Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus when God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased or in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter starts talking and God the Father interrupts him and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And here Pope Pius IX says, in Mary the Father was well pleased. But notice it's, it's part of this eternal plan that Mary was destined always to be the mother of of Jesus. The Catholic Catechism called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus. Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Spirit and even before the birth of her son as the mother of my Lord. Now, can Elizabeth's statement be true without it being heretical? Well, yeah, she's 
Mary's giving birth to the person of Jesus. So yes, you could say she is the mother of the Lord, but the Catholic teaching goes farther than saying Mary gave birth to the God-man, Jesus. The Catholic Catechism. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the church confesses that Mary is truly mother of God. She is the mother of the second person of the Trinity. And that term at the end, theotokos, is a Greek word. And it literally means God-bearer. Theos is God, tokos is to bear, to carry. But what you need to understand about this term is it has a historical context and a historical usage. And it was not intended to be a description of Mary. It was intended to help teach the incarnation to go against heretics who said that Jesus was not truly God. At like the Second Council of Constantinople, the Council of Chalcedon. James White says this, What is vitally important is that the term God-bearer, as it was used in the creed and as it was applied to Mary, it shows up in the Chalcedonian Creed, said something about the nature of Christ, not the nature of Mary. The purpose of the term Theotokos was to validate, to reaffirm that Mary was a human being, that God entered into her womb and she carried him. Not that she is the mother of God. Philip Schaff, the church historian, said this, The church, however, did not intend by Theotokos to assert that she was the mother of the uncreated divine essence for this would have been palpably absurd and blasphemous. Nor that she was herself divine, but only that she was the human point of entrance for the mysterious channel for the eternal divine logos. She was the human instrument that God chose to use to bring Jesus into the world. That's as far as that doctrine should go. Philip Schaff continues, If Mary is in the strict sense of the word, the mother of God, it seems to follow as a logical consequence that she herself is divine and therefore an object of divine worship. To say she is anything more than the mother of Jesus would be to say that she is the mother of God and therefore she herself is God. The ancient church, Philip Schaffigan, never asserted that Mary was the mother of the essential, eternal divinity of the Logos. She was and continues to be a created being, a human mother. And their theology makes her out to be God. And I'm not just going to say that, I'm going to show it to you. But that's what their theology does. It turns her into deity. The Glories of Mary by Alphonsus de Liguori. Here's what he wrote. So great is the authority of mothers over their children that although they may be monarchs, having absolute dominion over all persons in their kingdom, yet mothers can never become subject to them. That Jesus Christ, having deigned to make Mary his mother, was obliged, was obligated as her son to obey her. But of Mary alone can it be said that not only was it her lot to be subject to the will of God, but that God was also subject to her will. 
She's his mother. And would you tell your mother no? Therefore, she has authority over God. The glories of Mary again. Of the Virgin Mary, it may be said that the divine lamb followed her on this earth, having become subject to her. She's the mother again. You don't want to disrespect your mother. Hence, we may say that though Mary is in heaven and can no longer command her son, yet her prayers will ever be the prayers of a mother and therefore most powerful to obtain whatever she asks. And you're going to start seeing this idea that if you want grace and mercy from God, if you want grace and mercy from Jesus, you can't go to Jesus. You have to go to his mother because he's not going to listen to you. But if you go to his mother, he'll listen to her and she can convince, convince Jesus to help you. They've taken the doctrine of Theotokos and they've extended it far beyond what it should be. The glory, glories of Mary again. The virgin has all power in heaven and on earth, being able to raise to the hope of salvation even the most despairing. When the mother asks any favor for us of Jesus Christ, the son has so great a regard for the prayers of Mary and so great a desire to please her that when she prays, she seems to command rather than request and to be a mistress rather than a handmaid. Even her requests are viewed by God as a command because she's his mother. Thou, go ahead. Well, God the Father, the way it kind of, if you just listen to the implications of it, the way it kind of plays out is Jesus won't listen to you, so you go to Mary. Jesus will listen to Mary. God the Father won't listen to you, but he will listen to Jesus. So if you go to Mary, she'll go to Jesus, Jesus will go to the Father, and then you can get what you need. So how do they handle the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. It is. And they repeat the Lord's Prayer often. But here's the thing. You know they have the rosary? There's like 55, 50 Hail Marys. I don't know. I'm looking for a former Roman Catholic. I don't remember how many it is. There's like 50 Hail Marys in it. 50 prayers to Mary. Five of them are to the Father. The majority of the time praying the rosary is the prayer to Mary. Here's one. Thou art mother of God omnipotent to save sinners and needest no other recommendation with God since thou art the mother of true life. O mother of my God and my lady Mary, as a poor, wounded, and loathsome wretch presents himself to a great queen, I present myself to thee who art the queen of heaven and earth. Not only is she his mother, but they say as the mother of Jesus, who is the king, she is now the queen of heaven. So uh, so when Mary is moved to pray for a soul, she moves all heaven to pray with her. When she commands as being their queen, all the saints and angels to accompany her and unite their prayers to hers. She's the mother of God, 
therefore she's the queen of heaven. She has authority in heaven, even authority over God. And again, this is depicted in their images that they put out. Here's an image of Mary and the baby Jesus. Where's the authority in this picture? Is it with the baby? She's got a bigger crown. Medieval pictures, they would emphasize what they thought was most important by giving it more size, more color. This is the picture that I had to edit later, this next one. The guy on the right that his face is covered is supposed to be the father. I covered his face because that's just too much. The guy on the left is obviously Jesus. You can see the spear wound in his side. And the person in the middle is being crowned by the Father and by Jesus. That's Mary being crowned as the Queen of Heaven. Notice, Jesus does not have a crown on his head, and you can't see it, but there's no crown on the Father's head either. In the 90s, Newsweek had an article, and they included Mary in it, and they said it was the Holy Quartet. No longer the Trinity, because it's so obvious the Roman Catholic Church has deified Mary. Now, there is, if you would like, turning your Bibles to Jeremiah, there is a mention of the Queen of Heaven in Scripture. I don't think it's one that they want to affirm, but there is a mention of, Jer- of the Queen of Heaven. It's in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. The children of Israel were worshiping a false god known as the queen of heaven. Go over to Jeremiah 44, the same False God is mentioned in Jeremiah 44. We're not going to look at all of these verses. We're just going to look at one here. Verse 44, 17. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. Children of Israel were worshiping this false god called the queen of heaven. And while they were doing that, they said, well, we have food, we have water, we have everything we need, we have no misfortune, therefore we're going to go back to it. In verse 27, God gives his reply, Behold, I am watching over them for harm and not for good, and all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. That's the only mention of the Queen of Heaven in Scripture. Heaven has a king, doesn't have a queen. Rome says that Mary can can command God because she is his mother. Psalm 115 says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God doesn't answer to someone. He doesn't answer to Mary. 
Rome says that Mary is favored above other men because she is the mother of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, I read that God does not show partiality. Job 34, 19, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the riches above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. They are all creatures. And if a creature happens to be a prince, it doesn't really matter, because he is still a pot made by the potter. And Mary is a creature made by God. 1 Peter 1, 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth christians fall into this idea that if we just do some good things we'll have good favor with god we'll get ourselves right with god if we just do these things or if i just have this job or if i can just go into ministry if i can just do this god will be happy with me he shows no partiality all right any questions on Mother of God? Yes, sir. Uh huh. I don't know where he came from. I don't know a whole lot about the life of Pius the Ninth. There is a really good book if you if you're interested. It's called uh, the Oxford Encyclopedia of Popes by J. N. D. Kelly, and it's really good. You can actually go and look up every supposed pope throughout history, and he gives the dirt on all of them. So if they were out there, he tells you about it. But I don't know his background. Uh, the Oxford Encyclopedia of Popes. And it, it's one that's endorsed by Catholics, so it's not like I'm giving you something that's way off. All right, let's go to uh, any other questions. Did I see a hand? Okay, let's go to the next one. The Mediatrix of All Grace. And these are just kind of building on top of each other. This doctrine says that there is no grace received unless it is dispensed by Mary. Sinners must implore Mary's help in receiving grace and mercy from God. And again, it's depicted in their images. There's Jesus. He's got his immaculate heart, and out of his heart flows grace. And it goes to the hands of Mary, who then distributes God's grace and mercy to sinners. She is the mediator of grace, the Catholic catechism. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. If you want grace and mercy from God, you don't go to Jesus, you don't go to the Father, you go to Mary. Vatican II. This is, however, to be understood that it neither takes away nor adds anything to the dignity, dignity and efficaciousness of Christ, the one mediator, for no creature could ever be counted as equal with the incarnate word and redeemer. What they've just done here is they've just split hairs on you. They said Jesus is the one mediator between creatures and God, a.k.a. between Mary and God. But Mary is the mediator between you and Jesus. And if you want to go to Jesus, you need to go to his mother. 
the glories of Mary. And there is no doubt that on account of the merits of Jesus, the great privilege has been granted to Mary to be the mediatrix, the mediator of our salvation. She mediates between you and Jesus. John Paul II, the Pope who passed away about a decade ago, in a papal encyclical titled Redemptoris Mater, wrote this, Thus there is mediation. Mary places herself between her son and mankind. In the reality of their wants, needs, and sufferings, she puts herself in the middle, that is to say, she acts as a mediatrix, a mediator, and that not as an outsider, but in her position as mother. She knows that as such, she can point out to the son the needs of mankind. And in fact, she has the right to do so. Jesus just doesn't know what you need. And Mary is going to be so gracious and kind to you, she's going to go to Jesus and inform him what you need. By the way, Pope Paul II, Pope John Paul II, was a huge follower of Mary. Here's his papal motto. Totus tuus ego sum Maria. It means I am totally yours, Mary. That's his papal motto. He devoted his pontificate to Mary. He devoted his life to Mary. His papal crest has a large M, stands for Mary. He saw Mary as being the mediator of salvation and the dispenser of God's grace. And there is no... Oh, sorry, go ahead. That one? It is. It's very disturbing. The glories of Mary, and there is no doubt that on account of the merits of Jesus, the great privilege has been granted to Mary to be the mediatrix. I think I already read that one. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only mediator of justice. As we have stated above, who by his merits obtains for us the grace and salvation, but we affirm that Mary is the mediatrix of grace. And although whatever she obtains, she obtains through the merits of Jesus Christ, and because she prays and asks for in Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, yet whatever favors we ask are obtained through her intercession. So there it is. If you want justice, go to Jesus. As a sinner, why would you want justice? But if you want mercy, if you want grace, go to Mary. She's merciful. Our Lady, since thou art the dispenser of all graces, and we must receive the grace of salvation through thy hand alone, then our salvation depends on thee. Why cannot we implore the Mother of God to save us by obtaining for us, the, through her prayers, the grace of eternal life? And you say, well, Frank, no, Catholics today don't actually believe this. You're reading from a guy who was writing in the 19th century. This is outdated. No one actually believes that Mary is the mediatrix of all grace today. In California, there's a radio station called Relevant Radio. It's actually nationally syndicated. It is a Catholic radio station. 
they have a drive right now to offer 200 prayers to end abortion. And you might say, amen, that sounds great. The prayers are to Mary. Here's the prayer. It's called a memorarium. Here's the prayer. Remember, O most gracious, gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee do I stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate. Despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. If you want grace, you go to Mary. As we have access to the Eternal Father only through Jesus Christ, so says St. Bernard, we have access to Jesus Christ only through Mary. I don't have to tell you this, but this teaching is a fundamental assault on the very nature of God as being loving and merciful. In Scripture, God is not described as being distant, aloof, and cold-hearted. But you would think that listening to what they say about Him and what they say about Mary. In Scripture, it says the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Pastor preached out of Jonah 4 last week. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Because you're gracious, you're loving, you're merciful. If they pray to you, you'll actually forgive them. Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Yeah, but Jesus, you know, he had to die for us, so he, he's really not going to want to hear what you have to say. And so maybe we do need his mother. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, my yoke is easy. He said, I will in no wise cast you out. They don't. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reality is we don't know how they interpret the Old Testament because the Catholic Church has only given uh, an official ruling on the interpretation of a handful of verses. And when I found verses that they try to use to support this, they went to Proverbs 8, and they said Proverbs 8 was speaking of Mary. Well, Proverbs 8 is speaking of wisdom. Then they went to an apocryphal text, Sirach 24, which is also speaking of wisdom, and they said that was the words of Mary. Yeah, they, they use an allegorical interpretation. They spiritualize the text and insert the meaning they want. Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brethren so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For he, since he himself was tempted, that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 4, same message. Jesus is merciful and compassionate to sinners. He is the friend and the refuge of sinners. And Rome would have you believe, no, he's not. That's Mary. This doctrine cuts people off from the grace of the gospel. It tells the sinner you can't go to Jesus. You have to go to a false god named Mary. Of these six doctrines, all of these are considered official dogmatic teachings 
of the Catholic Church except this one. This has not been declared de fide. It has not been declared that it's something you must believe. But it's out there, and a lot of them believe it. Yes, number five, sorry. This doctrine is everywhere. Here's what it says. This doctrine teaches that Mary participated in Jesus' saving work on the cross through her cooperation at his birth and her suffering at his death. I think this next picture is from the Vatican. I could be wrong on that, but that is a picture of a crucifix. On one side is Jesus. On the other side of the cross is Mary. Here's another picture. That's Mary. Notice the Immaculate Heart with grace coming out of it, and look at her hands like she was crucified. And at the bottom, I don't know if you can read that. Down, no, you can't see that. Right down here. Mary, co-redemptrix, mediatrix of all graces, and advocate. If you just Google that, you'll find this picture. Pope John Paul II. Even if we tried by pain, we cannot but rejoice in our God, who has clothed us with garments of salvation and with the robes of righteousness in order to be able to change our suffering into a loving offer in imitation of Our Lady, the co-redeemer. God could indeed create the world from nothing, but when it was lost by sin, he would not redeem it without the cooperation of Mary. God had to have Mary's help and cooperation to redeem the world. The Catholic Catechism, espousing the divine will for salvation wholeheartedly without a single sin to restrain her, she gave herself entirely to the person and to the work of her son. She did so in order to serve the mystery of redemption with him and dependent upon him by God's grace. The last part about being upon God's grace is just to cover up the fact that they just said she participated in redemption. Catholic Catechism again, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and the whole human race. Pius IX, same guy from the Immaculate Conception, we've seen him constantly, same bull. And indeed, it was wholly fitting that so wonderful a mother should be ever resplendent with the glory of the most sublime holiness and so completely free from all taint of original sin that she would triumph utterly over the ancient serpent, that she would conquer Satan. And again, this is depicted graphically in pictures. And I've seen some Protestants share this on Facebook. And I'm going to be honest with you. If I see anyone share this who's here today, I'm going to say something to you. Okay? Here's the picture. On the left is Eve. She's holding an apple. On the right is Mary. She's pregnant. And because Catholics say she's only had one child, we know who's in the womb. Notice what's around Eve's legs over here. There's the serpent wrapping up her feet, tripping her up, making her fall into sin. And look where his head is. It's under Mary's foot. Mary is crushing the head of the serpent. You know the thing that was described in the Messiah in Genesis 3.15? Or you can go to Romans 16 and says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Mm, nope, Mary. The glories of Mary again. Mary really offered her son to death, knowing certainly that the sacrifice of the life of Jesus, which she then made, 
should one day be actually consummated upon the altar of the cross so that Mary, by offering the life of her son through the love she bore this son, really sacrificed herself entirely to God. They're saying Mary's the one who offered Jesus on the cross and that in, doing, in offering Jesus, she was offering herself. Let us only consider how great was the sacrifice that Mary has made of herself to God by offering him on this day the life of her son. Okay. There's only one Savior. There is only one Redeemer. Isaiah 49, 26. I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. He doesn't need anybody's help. Mary did not assist him in saving humanity. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. No mention of Mary. Mary didn't help him. John 10, 18, No one has taken my life from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. If I believe the, Mar the Marian doctrine that she is the co-redeemer, I have to disregard that verse. I have to assume that either John was lying or Jesus is lying. Because they say Mary offered Jesus. Scripture says Jesus offered himself. Philippians 2.8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, home stretch. We're on number six. It hurts. The assumption of Mary. The first unofficially recognized infallible statement by a pope was in 1854 on the Immaculate Conception. This one occurred in 1950 by Pope Pius XII. Different Pope. Here's what it teaches. This doctrine teaches that after her death, Mary's body was taken into heaven and did not undergo decay. This, they're making a distinction here between this and a resurrection. In a resurrection, her soul would come back to her body and then her body would go. They're saying her dead body was taken into heaven. Here's the decree. These next few slides are all from his decree because I don't want you to think I'm twisting something. So I'm just going to give you his decree, okay? Here's what he said. That privilege has been shown forth in new radiance since our predecessor of immortal memory, Pius IX, there he is, solemnly proclaimed that the dogma of the loving mother of God's immaculate conception these two privileges are most closely bound to one another. So he's building off the theology of the Immaculate Conception and the Mother of God. That's where he's beginning. And he's recognizing in the bull that sin results in death and death results in a body decaying. And he's saying that Mary is going to be preserved from this. Here's what he said. Yet according to the general rule that you're going to die and decay, God does not will to grant to the just the full effect of the victory over death until the end of time has come. And so it is that the bodies of even the just are corrupted after death, and only on the last day will they be joined together, each to its own glorious soul. So there he is affirming that everyone's going to die, and your body's going to decay. 
He continues, Now God has willed that the Blessed Virgin Mary should be exempted from this general rule. She, by an entirely unique privilege, completely overcame sin by her immaculate conception, and as a result, she was not subject to the law of remaining in corruption of the grave, and she did not have to wait until the end time for the redemption of her body. Her body did not undergo decay. She was taken into heaven and preserved from all decay. So how did he come up with this? Where did this come from? You ready for it? He took a poll. He polled a bunch of bishops and said, what do you guys think? Don't take my word for it. Let's just look at his decree. We considered it opportune to ask all our venerable brethren, a.k.a. the bishops, in the episcopate directly and authoritatively that each of them should make known to us his mind in a formal statement. Hence, on May 1st, 1946, we gave them our letter in which these words are contained, quote, Do you, venerable brethren, in your outstanding wisdom and prudence, judge that the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin can be proposed and defined as a dogma of the faith? Do you, with your clergy and people, desire it? Do you think this is true? Do you want me to declare as a dogma of the faith? A dogma, according to Catholic theology, is the doctrine that you must believe or you're a heretic. Here's the answer. But those whom the Holy Spirit has placed as bishops to the rule of the Church of God gave an almost unanimous affirmative response to both these questions. This outstanding agreement of the Catholic Church, of the Catholic prelates, and the faithful affirming the bodily assumption of God's mother into heaven can be defined as a dogma of the faith. Thus, by itself, and in an entirely certain and infallible way, manifest this privilege as a truth revealed by God and contained in that divine deposit which Christ has delivered to the spouse to be guarded faithfully and to be taught infallibly. He took a poll of clergy, and because they said yes, therefore it is divinely revealed. This is what happens when you abandon the authority of Scripture as the sole source of revelation. When you listen to the modern winds and say, oh, ditch the Bible, this is where it gets you. People coming up with all sorts of craziness. Correct. Correct. All right, I'm going to close this by doing this. I have a chart. On the left side is what they say about Mary. On the right side is what the Bible says of God or of Jesus. Ready? The Catholic Church teaches that Mary was sinless in the Immaculate Conception. The Bible says Jesus was sinless. Catholic Church says Mary is the is merciful, the refuge of sinners. The Bible says God and Jesus Christ are merciful and the refuge of sinners. Catholic Church says that Mary is our advocate and intercedes for sinners before God. She's the mediatrix of all grace. The Bible says that Jesus is our advocate, that he pleads before the Father for us, that the Spirit is interceding constantly for us. Catholic Church says that Mary redeems sinners and saves them. The Bible says that God alone, through Jesus Christ, redeems and saves sinners.
Catholic Church says Mary was assumed in heaven and her body did not undergo decay, but yet the Bible says only one person that was true of, and that was the Messiah. Are you seeing the connection here? At every step, the Marian dogmas exalt this fictitious God named Mary to the place of Jesus Christ in God. And Carl already said it. Folks, this is not Christian. This is nothing more than pagan idolatry masquerading as the Christian faith. Roman Catholicism is the most dangerous false religion in the world. There's no deception in Islam. Islam will tell you right out what they are. They'll flat out deny the Trinity. They'll flat out deny the death of Christ. They'll deny the resurrection. Rome affirms all of those things. And they use the truth to cover the lies that they teach like this. And they bid you to worship a false god named Mary. I hope you see these truly are heretical doctrines. These cut people off from the grace of God. And just like I ended last week, I would hope that you would not go to your Catholic family members and friends, put your arm around them and say, oh, but we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I would hope that you would love them far more than that. That you would give them the gospel and tell them of Christ. Because this is what they're depending on for their salvation. I don't want you to hate Catholics. I want you to love them and give them the gospel. Let's pray. We're over time. Father, the, the things we have seen today are upsetting, disheartening, sad. And there are so many people that are in our lives, that are in this area, that are around the world, that, it, that are caught up in this false religion, in this deception that cuts them off from the grace of God. And we just ask that you would expose that system for what it is, that you would reveal to their hearts the truth of who Christ is, that you and Christ are loving and merciful and kind and gracious, that you are the refuge of sinners, and they can flee and run to you. And I would ask that for those of us in this room and part of Grace Bible Church, that you would give us boldness, and that you would give us a heart of compassion, not to condescend and to demean and make fun of or call names to Roman Catholics, but that we would be loving towards them and that we would have the boldness to preach Christ and proclaim the gospel to these people. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.